and green is people! No. I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Dan Coyce, I'm an editor here at Slate, and today we are spoiling Toy Story 4, the return of Woody, Buzz, and Pixar's bottom line. Helping me spoil the movie today, we have Slate's culture editor, Forrest Wickman. Hi, Forrest. Hey, Dan. Also joining us today is Slate assistant editor, Marissa Martinelli. Hi, Marissa. Hello. Okay, so as in all spoiler specials, we will be discussing this movie's plot in detail. So if you don't want to hear about how the toys get lost and then they have to find their way home, rejoin us after you see the movie. Uh, Let's start our discussion today with uh, the the thing that everyone will be talking about as they walk away from this movie, the breakout new character of Toy Story 4, Forky, Um, voiced by Tony Hale. He is an anthropomorphic spork uh, with um, like a pipe cleaner arms and googly eyes. He's I, I believe Marissa by... could list every single component because she made a Forky herself. I know. We're going to get to that. Forky is created by Bonnie um, at her kindergarten orientation. Bonnie, of course, is the new owner of all the toys following the, it seemed at the time, definitive ending of Toy Story 3. Um, uh, Forky comes to life uh, in a moment that, for me at least, uh, called into question all my epistemological understandings of the Toy Story universe. And I would like us to start with that. So, Marissa, as someone who has, in fact, as Forrest alluded to, made a Forky with your own two hands, um, can you explain to our listeners, those who have seen the movie or those who have not, how, why is Forky alive? A question that Forky himself wonders about. I mean, I don't know that there is a definitive answer delivered by this movie. Well, so Woody does give explicitly an answer, which is that Forky it, as, is in the midst of yet another existential crisis, as he perpetually is for the first uh, first act of this movie. And Woody explains that it's, quote, because you have Bonnie's name written on the bottom of your sticks. Right, which doesn't really track with what we've seen in the movie because all kinds of toys are alive whether or not they're possessed by a child. Right, yeah. I mean, it's some combination seemingly of like imagination and a child's love. Right. It seems like the implication of that statement, if we want to parse it maybe just a little more deeply, is that toys as manufactured in factories or handcrafted by artisans automatically have life to the extent that sometimes they don't even know their toys as Buzz Lightyear did not in the first movie. Trash, like Forky, only attains life when named and beloved by a child. Does that seem accurate? It seems accurate to me. I, I, I mean, when we first learned about this character, I one of the things that was exciting to me about this movie was the notion that it would be exploring these metaphysical questions uh, in a way that reminded me, for example, of um, the kind of sentient uh, tortilla from Toy Story 3. Like, I think that's the best precedent we have for 
Forky, which is the scene in Toy Story 3 when Mr. Potato Head's like uh, eyes and nose uh, and perhaps ears, I don't recall, get attached to like a tortilla. And then he's able to like make the tortilla come to life. It's one of the best moments in Toy Story 3. Um, And so, but I mean, that that just raises a sort of potential the tortilla separate. i guess was more than 50 percent toy by volume and so therefore achieved sentience maybe or yeah perhaps i mean it's the presence of a face is the one of the deciding factors yeah oh, it's sort of unclear even to me whether that like is the tortilla i know i'm the person who described it as a sentient tortilla but is the tortilla sentient or is it just that all of the pieces of the face are sentient and then they're kind of moving the tortilla which remains simply a tortilla now, Forky, of course, just wants to be trash, as you noted, Forrest. He spends the whole first act of the movie just desperately trying to throw himself away as much as he can. Um, it's like a really great set of uh, basically sight gags about a character trying to commit suicide. It's really very good, and it provoked just, I mean, enormous gales of laughter. But it also made me think about, like, uh, you know, the lifespan and deaths so to speak, of these toys as they've been dealt with through these movies. Like Toy Story 3 made the possibility of death it's very explicit as it had them literally moving toward an inferno. Um, but, you know, your mention of the tortilla makes me wonder, Was when that tortilla was picked apart by pigeons, did it feel pain? Um, when Forky throws <laughs> himself into really the trash. going to a really dark place. Well, when Forky throws himself into the trash, he says he feels great. He says it's, like, warm and welcoming. It's a place he feels comfortable and safe. But, like, uh, if anything beloved by children becomes sentient in some way, like, children fall in love with and adopt all kinds of things that then suffer horrible fates. And so thinking of it in that perspective from the parental perspective, like the Cheeto that my kid carried around for a week one time because she was convinced that it was talking to her, like that Cheeto definitely eventually was thrown in the garbage disposal by me when she wasn't looking. And so that Cheeto as a sentient character really suffered a horrible fate. I guess all toys do in the end. They all end up in landfills or whatever. Um, But geez, So, Forrest, did you feel like this movie did do some interesting things with these kinds of questions of of who attains life and who doesn't and what makes for a consciousness in this universe? I mean, I thought they did about the minimal amount to be satisfying on that (laughs) on that tip. I mean, we haven't really talked about whether we liked this movie or not. I found this movie both. Um, extremely delightful and funny and moving and beautifully crafted and animated and even sort of beautifully shot, if you can use those terms with a animated movie. You and can. also, I just completely wish it did not exist. Like, if I could go back in time and kill baby Toy Story 4, like, before it became full-grown Toy Story 4 as it exists today, I would do that. Um, just because of the way that Toy Story 3 had gave this perfect close to this series and I find myself sort of mourning for the original series Um, and bringing it back to Forky I mean I think the best one of the things that really works about Forky is he really channels this sense that like I am something that should not exist right and so going into this movie I was afraid Forky was going to be a sort of poochie figure who would just be a total abomination and in many ways Forky is but what's interesting about Forky is that Forky also knows that and so like the movie was at least self-aware about its own uh, 
sort of unnaturalness, uh, the fact that it should not exist. I think you can't talk about Forky without talking about the fact that he definitely appeals to a certain micro generation in a specific way in the fact that he's constantly talking about trash. I mean, he would fit right in on Tumblr circa 2012 when Mm -hmm. everyone was all of the posts were I'm garbage. I'm, you know, ex fandom trash. I belong in the trash. Take me out. I'm trash. That kind of humor. And that's the generation that were kids when the first Toy Story came out. Right. And I think my fear was that it would be like a hello fellow kids kind of character. It worked really well to me. It was very sincere. Yeah. Forky really killed in my auditorium. Like, uh, I mean, across all ages, not just in the trash micro generation to which you refer, Marissa, but to everyone. Um, And I, I will say that like as simple as Forky's arc is, I found it very satisfying to find him embracing the notion that Bonnie loves him and and, sh- and he makes her feel the way he feels when he's in the trash, so therefore life is worth living. Like I thought that was sweet. and I did not and I did not find it like the bare minimum necessary to to sort of explore these questions. I thought the movie went it took this some interesting places. It's a nice parallel too, to the first movie where. Buzz Lightyear is convinced that he's not a toy because he thinks he's real and Woody has to convince him. And then in this movie, it's the same situation, except Forky is arguably correct that he is, in fact, trash. And it's more a matter of perspective. But he is also eventually convinced that he's a toy. Right. And in this case, Woody's job in Toy Story, the first movie, Woody's job was to bring another character down a peg to take him off his lofty perch of believing himself to be, uh, you know, a space ranger. In this movie, he is bringing a character up. A character believes himself to be essentially worthless and have no purpose. Woody is explaining to him and making him see that that he does have purpose. And so as a, a sort of a counter argument to the task that Woody undertakes in the first movie, I also like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the last thing I would say about uh, the relationship between Forky and the first movie, which uh, I think there's another uh, sort of thematic tie, which is that like looking back on the first movie, it kind of bothers me that Sid is the villain, like this character who dares to be creative with his toys and dares right. to make something new of his own rather than just using the corporate products as they are handed to him, that he's the villain and he's, you know, it's depicted as essentially him torturing the toys. For uh, those who may not remember from the very first Toy Story, Sid is the next door neighbor who Frankensteins his toys into various horrifying contraptions. Right. And in retrospect, he's just kind of like a creative goth kid. And this movie, I think, sends a somewhat better message. It like starts from that point of maybe creating something of your own results in something unnatural that should not exist and you should not play God. But it ends in a place where it's, where there is somewhat more of a happy gloss on all of that. Forky is the doctor. Forky's monster is the toy. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Uh, all right. So um, as I alluded to, um, the plot of this movie, such that it is, is that Forky jumps out the window and Woody jumps out the window after him. And then they have to find their way back to all their friends, the other toys, and to their child, Bonnie. Now, this happens while the family is on a road trip in the old RV um, to Grand Basin, which is essentially like a sort of like Yellowstone-esque neighboring uh, mountain town uh, with like a little carnival and an antique shop and stuff. And Woody cannot return Forky immediately because Forky and Woody get trapped uh, in an old antique shop, trapped by a voiceless doll named Gabby Gabby. Voiceless not because she can't speak to other toys, but because her voice box, the thing that would make her speak to humans if you pulled her string, has broken. And she views Woody with his working voice box as a solution to that problem. I would love to talk a little bit about Gabby Gabby. She's voiced by Christina Hendricks. Um, she is accompanied by a coterie of unbelievably creepy ventriloquist dummies. Um, and I found her a pretty great villain. Um, I I found her villainous arc and then also the way that she was sort of surprisingly redeemed at the end uh, kind of cool. What did you guys think about Gabby Gabby? I love that this movie was so creepy. To me, mm-hmm. Toy Story is fundamentally creepy just from the premise. And <laughs> I think Toy Story 3 was maybe a little bit more warm and fuzzy. But the first two movies, definitely. Like in the second movie, there's a whole scene where Woody has a nightmare and he's being consumed by a bunch of detached arms. And that to me is Toy Story. So I was very satisfied by these dummies <laughs> lurking behind corners and the horror movie quality. That's a great blurb for the poster of Toy Story 2. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what about you, Forrest? What did you think of Gabby Gabby? Yeah, I mean, she was great. I feel like I'm the person who's going to agree with all with you guys about everything, but then be angry about right. it just because oh. it was not like like. So the thing with the dummies, so the dummies are really funny. I laughed at them a lot. However, like just the idea of taking dummies and making them creepy uh, is not the kind of most. It it is not original in the way that one hopes a Pixar movie would be original. This was in many ways the first Toy Story movie that felt to me um, much more like a Disney movie. I mean, there have been a lot of um, Pixar movies that have felt like Disney movies, but the Toy Story franchise has been uh, really strong so far. Like they've kept, they know it's the flagship franchise, and even though there are sequels, they have been. Um, surprisingly original with these like truly daring strokes in the you know in the middle of them or end of them or whatever at least at moments and this one didn't feel that way to me as much and it felt more just like a Disney movie that was uh, very nicely done and like played with genre a little bit so we have these horror elements here but ultimately is not doing something super new and like the Gabby Gabby character and the dummies and all of that were just examples of it for me, I think. What's really interesting about Gabby Gabby is that I think she's the only major Toy Story villain to be fully redeemed. Like, she's definitely a tragic figure, and she doesn't get her first happy ending, which is what she wanted, where right. the little girl who's the granddaughter of the proprietor of the antique shop, she is convinced that if her voice box is fixed, she'll able to go with this girl but they do find her another child and she presumably lives happily ever after with this kid and that's not true i don't think of any of the other toy story villains like lotso bear Mm -hmm. is awful stinky pete 
they both wind up with different owners, but they're unhappy and they get their comeuppance. But I thought that was interesting that for the final outing, we got a redeemable villain. And she doesn't earn it exactly. Like she, we see a side of her personality that isn't purely evil in, uh, uh, you know, at times in her interactions with Forky, even though she has an ulterior motive for those interactions with him. Um, but this movie seems to be making the argument that, like, the need of a toy to be loved by a child is so primal that it can excuse almost any kind of horrible behavior, including forced surgery upon another toy. I feel like we've got I'm, – I'm shocked that we've gotten this far without, I think, describing, like, the central conflict of – the movie like you come into this movie thinking that it's going to be about Forky it's not really about Forky and then the whole Gabby Gabby stuff was fun but I don't really know what all of like the whole voice box plot and all of that really added up to and I think you know the heart of this movie is about Woody and Bo and what Woody is going to do with his life post Andy and I think we got to talk about that so let's talk about Bo Peep who the movie reminded us Disappeared nine years ago when Andy's sister got older and was no longer interested in her Bo Peep lamp. Um, She is played as she was in the first two movies when she was a a very, very minor character by the great comic actress Annie Potts. What a gift to have a great Annie Potts performance in the year 2019. I never thought that would happen, but I'm so delighted that it happened. Bo now, as Woody discovers her out in uh, Grand Basin, where she has ended up, is now the sort of ringmaster or the ringleader of a pack of feral toys who um, just sort of make themselves available to kids playing in a playground and who have greater dreams of traveling the world to or at least the country to see the country and then to to just play with whatever kids happen to come across their path. They are not lost toys. They are free range toys as the movie presents them. Um, and so Woody's reuniting with Bo Peep, a character who this movie reminds us he's had some flirtatious interactions with before, transforms the movie into a genre that Pixar has not played around with very much in the past, which is a rom-com. Marissa, as a rom-com and as you are a rom-com expert, uh, how does this movie use those elements and did that specific line work for you? I thought it worked surprisingly well. I mean, Pixar's flirted a little bit with romantic comedy with Wally, but I think this is the first one that they specifically situated as a rom-com in comments that have mostly been forgotten from like four years ago. Pixar's president explicitly said Toy Story 4 will be a rom-com. So I was watching as I went into the theater to see how it hit those tropes. And, you know, Bo Peep was missing from Toy Story 3. And I can't say that at the time I even really noticed or cared. She's such a minor character in the first two movies in terms of having an actual effect on the plot. But I loved how this movie set that up. The fact that she goes missing, it turns out that she was given away or sold, as the case may be. And she and Woody have a an emotional goodbye at the beginning, and then they come across each other in a way that's not necessarily a meet cute, but is definitely has a lot of those elements. They're getting to know each other. She is driving around in this skunk like contraption. Uh, there's a also a key part of any good romantic comedy, in my opinion, is that there is a separate work plot 
for one of the main characters where there's a right. looming deadline and usually a vague presentation. And Woody kind of has that in this movie in that he has to get Forky back to Monty. And then, of course, the most important element is that the two leads do eventually end up together, which they do. After trials and tribulations, right? They spark. They have uh, chemistry. Then they fall apart for some reason, in this case, because Woody is messing up uh, Bo's, like, really great adventurous life. She One of the things that I loved about this movie is that Bo is a total badass. She's, like, living a great, happy life, doing things that she loves. She's not, like, hoping to be rescued by Woody parachuting into her life. She is living a great life that she's interested in adding Woody to if he's interested. And as Forrest, you noted, the question for Woody becomes, what is the life he wants in the future? He's already been sidelined somewhat in Bonnie's life. We see early in the movie that She's more interested in playing with other toys. She takes his sheriff's badge off and gives it to Jesse. And so he's always fought as hard as he can to maintain his position in the lives of the kids that he's been with, first Andy and now Bonnie. And he's always viewed it as a toy's primary objective. In fact, it's only raison d'etre to be with the kid who loves him or her. But the question for Woody becomes – What do you do if you're not that important to a kid anymore and you are presented with the opportunity for a totally different life, a life maybe playing with a bunch of kids, a life of adventure, a life maybe separate from kids entirely for some period of it? Uh, Were you guys surprised at the choice he made at the end? Um, I I was totally surprised. I mean, the 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 movie starts by showing you that Woody will choose his loyalty to you know his child, we could say his human, over anything, including love. And then the movie basically spends the entire runtime like testing that loyalty. And so when you get to the end of it, you're 180 degrees from where you started. I I would say just getting back to the rom-com thing briefly, I, I have like two other genres that I think that this movie is. The, uh, the first one is really just like an amendment to the first one. Like sp- specifically, I think it's in many ways a screwball romantic comedy, mm. um, which gets at the gender stuff you were talking about, Kois, in the sense that um, it's not really about them falling for each other like they were already together in the in the mode of many screwball uh, rom-coms, which are often like couples who are already married and maybe the conflict is between um, whether to choose, you know, journalism in the case of His Girl Friday over the marriage. And also, you know, the, the fact that she is this stronger character who challenges the male lead's masculinity is, is super screwball, in addition to just like a lot of kind of uh, rapid repartee and stuff. The other genre is this, I mean, in some ways this might sound kind of obvious because it's a movie about a cowboy, but I think that argue like another way of looking at the central conflict in this movie is to, is that it's kind of a Western um, in the sense that, you know, you have that similar question of, like, like this movie is almost literally The Searchers, where it's like there's a character who's been lost. In this case, it's Bo. And the cowboy must, like, run off on his own adventure to try to save this character. Of course, Bo, Bo doesn't 
it turned out it turns out she doesn't want to be saved. Right, um, Forky's the damsel in this movie. Right, yeah, right. And then the the final decision, as in like the last shot of the searchers, is whether the cowboy will sort of run off and join the frontier again, or whether he'll he'll like he'll settle down, you know, in a more domestic life with a partner and so on. And 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 so like. And the 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 ending of the movie, it almost seems like it was sort of playing with that visually, and then and there's a lot of you know Western soundtracking and stuff throughout, but then it you know kind of reverses what you would traditionally expect. Because in this case, choosing romance is choosing the frontier life in a way. Yeah, I mean, it gets right. uh, the like the analogy breaks down at at some point pretty quickly, but I mean that was the closest I came to crying. Did you guys cry when Woody said goodbye to his fellow toys? I did not. In fact, I thought that Woody and Buzz shared so little screen time in this movie that their final goodbye almost like it didn't hit me the way that it should have because they barely were interacted. Really, their key scene is a scene in which Woody tells Buzz that all of his decision making comes from his inner voice, which Buzz comically misunderstands. And that's pretty much all he does for the movies. Look for Woody and Forky and press his uh, voice box button and get innermost thoughts delivered in a preset way. But no, I I didn't cry at that point. I did cry when Gabby Gabby found her person. I thought that was a tear-inducing moment. But I I don't know, the ending, because this movie was more about Woody and Bo than it was about Woody and Buzz, the final goodbye between them, it, it didn't really land for me. Dan. It definitely made kids in my audience cry. And it struck me that the ending of this movie is meant to be sad for kids. It's not really meant to be sad for adults. Adults understand that Woody is making the right choice and uh, is doing is is doing the right thing and that this is a necessary goodbye, but one that's not really particularly painful. Um, it, I thought it was actually I mean, I looking back on this movie, I roll my eyes at how obvious I am. But of course, the moment I cried was just like the not it wasn't even Gabby Gabby finding her human. It was Gabby Gabby's human, a lost kid at the fair finding her mom. And then I was like, oh, she was lost at the fair, but now she found her mom. And that's when I and every other parent teared up. But like the actual the ending, not only I think you're right, Marissa, that the that the relationship between Buzz and Woody was so like totally sidelined in this movie that like there wasn't much impact to their final departure from each other. But also, as is probably appropriate, that's only really sad to kids. <laughs> and this is, of course, a children's movie. And Pixar, you know, hearkening back to something that you said before, Forrest, Pixar has done a remarkably good job uh, over the course of the Toy Story movies, particularly of finding ways, ever more potent ways, for these movies to emotionally hit not just kids or maybe not even kids, but adults. And the reason that this movie feels, I think, to me, like you, a little bit more like a quote-unquote Disney movie is that this is the Toy Story movie that really just seems like it's a great adventure for kids specifically. There's very little in here that adults, whether parents or non-parents, are necessarily going to feel like deeply emotionally attached to in most cases. Yeah, there was a point early on where I kept wondering whether the movie was going to be about empty nest syndrome. Like, uh, you know, Woody has 
literally lost his child in Andy. And, and, and maybe my favorite moment of the movie is just Woody walking down the road. It's, it's kind of a long take. It's just, they hold on Woody and Forky walking down the road for a long time by the standards of movies. I'm sure it's only like 40 seconds, but, um, and Woody is just sort of talking about how much he loved Andy and how lost he is and, and so on. And then, I wasn't, you know, as somebody watching this as an adult, I wasn't sure, like I couldn't find something grounded in the real world to relate to the conclusion. Like what does it mean to like a parent for Woody to go off with Bo and then join this, uh, like it's almost like running a foster home or something. It was just unclear exactly how I was supposed to relate to that emotionally. Oh, I have something on that. I think yeah. that this is the first Toy Story movie to specifically like advocate the the power and uh, and worth of a child free life, right? You know, like that's basically what Bo and Woody have chosen. I think a foster home is not inappropriate. They want to have kids in their life, so they're eventually choosing to foster them as opposed to having kids of their own. And it, and the movie seems to be making an argument essentially that. These creatures whom we previously assumed only to have worth in a relationship with their children have worth whether they have children or not. Um, and like I think that to people who are child-free by choice or child-free not by choice, I think that's actually probably a pretty powerful message if if they come out of the movie reading it that way as I did. Um, and, you know, for a kid's movie, that's like notable. Yeah, I mean, I guess as somebody who – you know, is like 32 and is not sure whether he wants to have children at all. Like you would think I'm exactly the person who, for whom that message would hit home. And yet it didn't for me. I mean, it just felt a little muddled because as, as we're saying, it's like he sort of chooses a childless life, but he also chooses a life when, in which he'll have child children perpetually because he's, kind of running a foster home you know he's just like living in the sandbox where children will have an endless supply of children and so is that more like becoming a grandparent or what like it just that i'm glad it hit home for you but it felt a little too muddled to me to for it to really hit home as a sacrifice i thought it felt short because we saw early in the movie that bonnie is really not interested in woody as a toy anymore Mm. like she does give the sheriff's badge to jesse which in a way felt like an on-the-nose kind of, okay, we're passing the torch to women kind yeah. of thing. And here is this old, I think he's like a 1950s toy we learn in Toy Story 2, who has aged out and is once again not relevant. And so is it really that much of a sacrifice for him to go off? I thought it fell short a little bit since there's not a ton waiting for him with Bonnie. Right. I mean, you're alluding to this gender stuff, which I thought might be another way in which this movie would really hit home for me. This this movie felt like um, one of many recent movies where it seemed as if, and I think in this case it, it definitely was, developed in a world of like 2015 and 2016 when we thought that Americans would have a female president for the first time. And so it starts off with Woody in this home where he's kind of serving a girl for the first time and the girl wants Jesse to be the sheriff and he's trying to learn how to be a man who is not an alpha. And the movie like 
it didn't totally bungle that, but it, it that didn't end up being a sort of emotional core for the movie really either. Like that's another place where it definitely could have got to me and it did not really. Yeah, they seem to make an effort. I mean, Bonnie throws a tea party early on and but her toys otherwise don't seem really gendered. Like she's playing with other boy toys, boy mm-hmm. toys as though there is such a thing. But you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't explicit in that. It was very muddled in that aspect. I think the gendered aspect is most interesting in that there just were female characters in this movie. I mean, the villain is Gabby Gabby. Bo Peep gets this tomboy makeover um, that actually felt earned, unlike a lot of movies where, because Jesse already sort of fills the role of like the tomboy cowgirl. And Bo Peep, since they made an effort to set up a rich backstory for her and it really explained why she went from this coquettish demure shepherdess to an adventurer who tears off her skirt and wears it as a cape and her ceramic arm is detached and it's no big deal she throws it back on yeah i mean in fact by the time that this spoiler special is is live we'll probably also have a piece from ingo kang live in which she's going to write about that in relation to the many 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 franchise sequels that add female characters basically by just remaking old male characters and in, in in with with women casted. So like both the obvious sort of gender flip examples such as the Ghostbusters movies and Ocean's Eight and also something more recent like Men in Black International where you get this Tessa Thompson character who in some ways is original, but is mostly just like a rehash of the Will Smith character from the original Men in Black. This the like Bo Peep is not just a rehash of Woody or anyone else. No, she's pragmatic in her own unique way. When she's initially sold off, she just sort of takes her lumps and she invites Woody to come, but he has a different view of being a toy than she does. She is a great character. I think it's a shame in some ways that Forky will be the, like, breakout character uh, of whom many people will wear as a horrifying Halloween costume. But I'd love to see some steampunk adventurous Bo Peep costumes out at Halloween this year. I think that'd be great. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. All right. Well, let's do a quick lightning round, if we could. I would like to get your guys' thoughts very briefly on a few of the other new characters we haven't touched on yet. Let's start with Duke Kaboom. Duke Kaboom, the um, Canadian evil Knievel played by Keanu Reeves. Um, Was he worth keeping in this movie or was he too much? Go. Too much. Really? He was fun, but also I think this movie was so crowded with new characters yeah. that... Okay, so I would cut the some of the characters we're going to talk about next, I think, before cutting Duke Kaboom. Who is just like... I mean, the obvious thing about to say about Duke Kaboom is that in addition to being a can- Canadian evil Knievel, he is the latest example of Keanu Reeves just becoming so beloved with audiences again by essentially parodying his like former action hero persona. So, you know, this is something he does very obviously in Always Be My Maybe. Spoiler alert. Sorry, Netflix. We spoiled your thing. Um, in which he literally plays himself kind of as a 
karate chopping asshole. And also, I think it really started with the John Wick movies in which he sort of plays a riff on on Neo. And and this is just like kind of another example of that. It's maybe the broadest example yet, but I thought it really worked. He's another character, too, who has insecurities because he failed to please a former owner. But I just did not understand the they keep saying like oh he crashes and that's an advantage or something (laughs) i wish we i will say i wish we right i wish we had a uh we're we're missing some canadian diversity on this panel because i really want to know what a canadian thinks of uh duke kaboom who just like you know they gave him the most canadian backstory possible where like what he's a gift on boxing day for example yeah i really enjoy christmas I hope that the Canadians in our audience are not upset at, at, about it. They're probably going to be very uh, polite and generous about it. Uh, all right. Ducky and Bunny, uh, the carnival prizes joined at the wing and paw, I guess, uh, played by Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. Keep or bail? Cut. Yeah. Look, they're not they're not really for us. They're clearly like funny side characters that yeah. I think kids will buy toys of because they're big and fluffy but sure yeah I mean it's like keep them in the children's cut of the movie but remove them from the adult yeah cut of it was toy Story like film. I thought it was a real masterstroke to create characters who when purchased by children must be purchased as a set like that is genius but uh, I mean quickly on them they're basically just you know so it's key and peel and they're basically just doing the bellhops is like the yes. closest thing. This was more clear, and one of the early ads literally just had Ducky and Bunny saying like, "Oh shit!" Like that was the sickest trailer, and like running back and forth and doing all the things that the bellhops do. And the characters, ex- as they actually exist in the movie, are slightly more distinct from the bellhops, but not that distinct. I think it, they would have been better as a cameo, just on the yeah. wall when Buzz is trying to escape, rather than brought into the end of the movie. Right. They did not need to join them on their entire quest on which they did nothing. On the other hand, the scenes where they envision attacking humans were received in my movie theater with shrieks of delight. They got bigger laughs than anything else in the entire movie, which is, I mean, a very funny movie. But boy, did those things hit hard. All right, finally, we have this very brief reveal in the movie um, of a, a, a pinball machine inside which a bunch of toys are just hiding, I guess, or just finding a retirement home of sorts in this antique shop where toys never get bought and otherwise they just sit on the shelf, where it turns out, I found from the credits, I believe live Mel Brooks, Carol Burnett, Betty White, uh, and Carl Reiner. Do they make any impact on you at all? I mean, now that you say that, that's great. I did not notice during the movie. <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice during the movie. I feel like I vaguely noticed Mel Brooks's name in the credits because I think his character has a name that's very similar to the name They're Mel Brooks. Melephant Brooks, yeah. Cheryl Burnett, Bitey White, and Carl Reiner Rosseris. Yeah. I mean, I can't say I would say, like, cut Carol Burnett, Mel Brooks, et cetera, because... They didn't wait. No, I would the say give them real roles. They didn't do any harm, yeah, but right. I did not know until this moment that they were in there. Like give them something to do for fuck's sake. Uh, all right. So this brings us finally, I think, to a question that, Forrest, you have answered already. Um, the question that Forky asks all the time, should 
this exist? Uh, we all agree it's funny. We all agree it has some good lines. It got big laughs. It's a good adventure, decent rom-com. But should it exist, given the perfection with which Toy Story 3 ended, uh, should this movie exist? Forrest, we know what you think. Marissa, Trash. what do you think? Uh, <laughs> I, I think it does not do any harm for this movie to exist. Ugh. I would not consign it to the trash. It's a very good movie. I mean, we've already pointed out that it feels more like a Disney movie than a Pixar movie. And I agree that Toy Story 3 had such a perfect ending that revisiting these characters with a story that was anything less than perfect and then giving it a different ending is a little unsatisfying. But all in all, I am of the opinion that if you want to pretend this movie doesn't exist, you can. It was a very pleasant way to spend the time spent watching it. Do you think that the Toy Story series is stronger with these four movies, or do you think it would have been stronger as a whole if there was just the three movies? I think it would probably be stronger as just the three movies. You know what's funny is if this was Toy Story 2 and then Toy Story 2 was Toy Story 3 and Toy Story 3 was Toy Story 4, it would have been perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly uh, how I mean, that the timing works. wouldn't work exactly right. Exactly like, because this whole movie starts from the premise that that Woody doesn't have Andy anymore, and so what is yeah, he yeah, do? I know. But like, yeah. just like the general vibe of the movies, if they right. had sort of like this is be- I think this is a better movie than the first Toy Story. I do um, wonder if this movie, yeah, I agree with that, is a little bit more bloated, just because Pixar now has the technology to do so much. I recently rewatched Toy Story two which I think Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3 are probably the best in the franchise. Mm -hmm. And it's such a tightly plotted movie in a way that this one wasn't. And sure, the animation is is very good for the time. It's a little dated. But I I do wonder if now they just can do whatever they want. They don't really have to think what is essential to the movie. Well, they've been famous for many, many years for the kind of story brain trust that works to – shape these scripts um, just as much as they focus on the technology and the animation and character creation. They've been famous forever for being ruthless about finding, making sure scripts work and making them as good as they possibly can be. They, you know, in fact have, I think they're very, they've been very old fashioned in that way in their devotion toward workshopping stories endlessly and making sure they really work. This is definitely the first Toy, Toy Story script where it feels like that process didn't really take place, that they're perfectly willing to leave in weird inconsistencies or bits that aren't that great or leave a character without that much to do, like a showcase character like Buzz Lightyear with a plot that isn't even like the D plot in a bad sitcom. And so that that is like a shame. At the same time, like there's so much that is really great in this movie. I mean, from... This way, the way that the movie posits that being a lost toy, the thing that every toy feared for the first three movies is not necessarily a fate worse than death to like as a parent. I loved the simple acknowledgement of the incredible pain and agony that parents go through simply because their kids make some piece of shit at kindergarten and then get really attached to it. Like I really connected to that. So, I mean, I think despite. The things about this movie that are demonstrably not as good as the other, as many other Toy Story movies, I'm still very happy that it exists. And I had a great time. My kids had a great time. 
I think it's going to be justifiably an amazing hit. And even if it's not as good as other Pixar movies, if every movie made for kids was made with the care and delight and attention to story beats that this one was, it would definitely be a much better entertainment environment out there. Dan, I look forward to your kids in their terrifying forky morph suits for Halloween. Uh, I'm going to make them dress as Bo Peep. Fair enough. All right. Thank you guys for joining me for the Slate Spoiler Special on Toy Story 4. Uh, And thank you all for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. If you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store. Uh, If you think that this show has no reason to exist, like Toy Story 4, don't rate and review us. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt. Our engineer is Merritt Jacob. For Forrest and Marissa, thank you for listening. Thank you.